standard issue for all women. Hello, welcome to day five of our International Women's Day 2020 series, You Lucky Beggars. So far this week, Hannah and I chatted to writer, actor and all-round superstar Amelia Bullmore about responsible writing, the art of mimicking and sexy yoghurt. Hmm, yeah. Mick had a natter with founding leader of Women's Equality Party, activist and author of the new book, Five Rules for Rebellion, Sophie Walker, about being a positive feminist and her new role as the CEO of the Young Women's Trust. I caught up with Sue Pollard, yes guys, Sue Pollard, to chat ageing, wedding singers and parrots, obviously. Yesterday, Mick spoke to actor and theatre maker Andrea Heaton about her new play Smile Club and the taming of unruly women. Still to come, Mick will be talking to Vivian Hayes, CEO of the Women's Resource Centre, and Hannah to photographer, writer and activist Samra Habib. I'm tired now, are you? Well, you very shortly won't be as you engage and energise your chuckle and indeed righteous indignation muscles while listening to today's podcast in which Mick and I talk to journalist and author of new book Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights, Helen Lewis. We talk about, I think, actually everything. I think we talk about all the things and it's great. Helen's book is excellent, funny, smart, full of historical pearls of wisdom which we can and indeed should be learning from. So listen to this, then go out and source yourself a copy with immediate effect. But for now, enjoy. We are joined by journalist, indeed staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the new book, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights, Helen Lewis. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. And also joined by... Me, Mickey. Yo. Uh, Sorry about the yo. Staff writer at The Atlantic. Is it nice to just have, like, basically no word count? You can just write for reams and reams. Yes, although obviously you try not to take the piss too much and kind of. But that's the trouble, isn't it? Any subject, I don't know if you have this, any subject I start reading about, I becomes more and more fascinating the more I read about it. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely think I, I could get really into drain covers. That's Jeremy Corbyn's very into drain covers. <laughs> but you probably, you would probably, I can imagine you start reading about them and then they do become incredibly interesting. I just wondered if Helen was tempted by that advert on the back of the buses that says you should become a roll plug expert. Mm. I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen that. I'm not entirely confident I know what a roll plug is. It's the thing. <laughs> That you when, put you, in when the you make a hole when in the you wall, you make can't a just put a screw in it. You got to put the screw in the thing first. It's a rule plug. There you go. Every day's a school day. Yeah, I think there's more to the training than Jen's letting on, but um... I think it is roughly that. Okay. Just on the Atlantic, I read a Tarnahisi Coates article once that I had to do in three sittings. Was that the case for reparations? No, it was about Barack Obama. Oh, yeah, his writing on Barack Obama was, was phenomenal. I mean, it was amazing, but it took me three sittings to finish it. I love The Atlantic, though, because I, I've got to say that, obviously, if I go in there and I've only got a set amount of time, it might take a couple of sittings. But the joy of just sitting down and reading such yeah. a, a long read... I would like to clarify that most of my pieces are about a thousand words to twelve hundred words long. It's not like every one I sit down and kind of start writing the Declaration of Independence. Hundred thousand words. Well, actually, that's quite actually, yeah, Declaration of Independence. It's relatively good. Oh, look, tea. We've been interrupted by tea. The best kind of interruption. Okay, so difficult women. I assume that that title is inspired by the Eleanor Roosevelt quote. No, but it's tell me not. the Eleanor Roosevelt quote. Ah, that uh, well-behaved women rarely make history. It's one of the things that was in my mind, and they, yeah, the publisher used it as the proof 
uh, jacket. But there's loads. It's one of those things, it's a concept that comes up again and again and again. The epigram of the book is actually George Bernard Shaw from 1904, where he says, you know, the reasonable man sees the world and adapts himself to it. The unreasonable man sees the world and tries to adapt it to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. And I put my epigram, which is all woman. But there's loads. <laughs> it comes up so many times. So... Uh, there's a book from 1983 by David Plant, which is a biography of Sonia Orwell, Jean Rhys, who wrote Wisegasse Sea, and Jermaine Greer, and that's called Difficult Women. Uh, Elizabeth Wurzel wrote a book in the 90s called Bitch, and the subtitle was In Praise of Difficult Women. Uh, Roxane Gay used it for a short story collection. Um, you know, it's one of those things that it's, an, it's a concept that comes up again and again because it, it is, I think everybody edges towards the idea that women are kind of asked to be perfect and selfless and nice. And that's a big part of what I think we now call female socialisation. And if you want to get things done, you have to, to some extent, reject that. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what the book is about? Yeah, so I kind of thought, you know, Catelyn Moran's book did phenomenally well and I think did a brilliant job of introducing people to feminism. And it was the kind of book that you could give to, you know, your dad or your brother or your you know, niece or, you know, it was their first kind of book just to say, here's all this stuff that's going on. But then I, I thought bought, I bought How to Be a Woman for about five different women. Right, because it is it's entry yeah. level, right? You don't it's need so any. Good. There's no kind of theoretical knowledge needed. You just need to have lived a life in the world to Absolutely. be able to have things in it that resonated with you. But then I thought, well, what's the next book after that? What, where would I go if I wanted to find out a kind of broad span about where how we got to here? And there's kind of you know textbooks and formal history books and then there's a lot of books that are you know one aspect taken very seriously but I thought no one's really kind of gone and put it all together and had tried to have a what I think of as a look of kind of across the whole waterfront and I thought maybe the reason that no one has done that is because that's an insane thing to do and no one is stupid enough to try it so I came up with this very weird way of doing it which was to frame it as, as fights and and most of the chapters are have one or two main women in them so it kind of gives it a focus there's loads of stuff that I've left out inevitably but that's kind of I've tried to try and embrace that but just to say here are some of the kind of groundings of some of these concepts you might have heard of you know words you might have heard of um, or wondered why people are so angry about a particular topic and you know here's the here's the background to it so again trying to say you don't have to know anything about feminism to come into this book just have lived a life in the world and you know there's no stupid questions and the term difficult, so it's twofold. You're literally wearing it as a badge of honour today mm. in a very cool necklace. I have given to me by Caroline Criado Perez. Got her a necklace for when her book came out that said Visible Woman, <laughs> which she's still got, and she's got me a necklace that says Difficult. So, yeah. yeah, I've got one in the same style that says Fuck the Tories. So yeah, it's and so you're wearing. We've all got our messages to send <laughs> with go. our jewellery. There we go. But you um, know, this has got a long history. The suffragettes had uh, jewellery that they made for each other. They had hunger strike medals. Mm. You know, they saw themselves as an army and when you came out from doing a hunger strike you would get you know you'd get a medal with a ribbon that was in purple white and green so people kind of go oh it's feminism it's the commercialization it's just feminism for tote bags but actually visible symbols are really important when i was in ireland for the um, abortion referendum seeing those repeal jumpers yep was an incredibly strong signal because abortion had been a subject that had been shrouded in so much shame. You know, you didn't talk about your abortion, you didn't talk about being on the pill, whatever it was. And to see all these women out there making that case was a really, I think, really affected the result, made people feel it was okay to talk about and okay to have that conversation. Sorry to always bring it back to Beyonce, but it's kind of like how people say that oh, she's just doing it for commercial, blah, 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 whatever. I don't think it matters, to be honest. As long as, like, young women are hearing her, 
and hearing what's being said, if it's putting it out there, if it's giving it a platform, I actually don't think it really matters. I wouldn't phrase it quite like that, because I always do worry about the kind of commercialisation, particularly when you see kind of corporations taking on feminism yeah. as a kind of badge <laughs> of, uh, you know, we're nice people, really. You know, we might, be, we might make drones, but we've got great, you know, we've got 50-50 on our board. You kind of go, mm, OK, I'm not sure that counts. But I do take your point, which is, the question you ask yourself is, would you rather Beyonce did it or not? And I think on balance, I'm really glad that she's done it. And, you know, one of the things I quote in the book is this line from Simone de Beauvoir, you know, half victim, half accomplice, like everyone else. And if you're trying to wait for the perfect feminist statement or the one that is pure and uncorrupted by capitalism, you're going to be waiting an extremely long time. There you go. That's the, the yeah. flip side of difficult because all of the women that you've spoken about have been integral to these vital fights being won, but they were problematic either among their peers or they would be with contemporary feminists. Yeah, and that was the other thing that I wanted to write the book about is that writing a history inevitably forces you to confront the fact that times change and arguments that seem reasonable at one time get superseded and you know to warn us off our kind of end of history complacency ourselves right about the fact that there are things that we're doing that will probably look incredible and backward to people in 50 years time and not Mm -hmm. to be kind of smug about that but yeah I also think that you have to try and find a way of having heroines without acknowledging that they're you know acknowledging that they're infallible otherwise you get into the situation where you go why is politics so grubby why can't anyone inspire me now where's the you know again it's where's the search for the perfect feminist or the perfect politician well there isn't one you have to take people warts and all I was thinking about this the other day because there was a big hoo-ha on Twitter which you probably saw about Rachel Reeves has written a book about women in Westminster and she'd written a Twitter thread about Nancy Astor yep who was the first female MP who had some pretty to questionable... take a seat. You'll get mobbed by, people, by Constance yeah, Markovic fans. Yeah. But she, she had some pretty problematic views. Well, she was anti-Semitic, herself. like a lot of people were at the time, and uh, incredibly posh, as you might expect. Her maiden speech is very funny. It's about all the stuff that Plymouth's given the world, and then she calls for temperance, you know, for drink reform, cause, which was a very popular cause in the 1910s and 1920s, but with the undertone that the trouble is that working-class people really can't be trusted to hold their booze, and they're just causing a lot of trouble. But she had views that were entirely of her time. But you know what got me about that? And I think this is, this is probably going to get me in trouble to say this, but I saw a lot of people leaping all over Nancy Astor from the left who had rather less to say about Jeremy Corbyn's own anti-Semitism. And it's one of those things where I think people are willing to recognise the foibles of the other side as they see it and rather less willing to confront their own. I think their issue was, well, Jeremy Corbyn would have been ripped apart for this. And I think that's a fair point, but I also think that it's not a race... Well, Nancy isn't running to be Prime Minister, is she? (laughs) But I think it's not a race to the bottom. I also think it ties into the fact that society is still not willing to accept a flawed woman as someone to look up to like you've got to be you've said the word a couple of times you've got to be perfect you've got to be pristine and that's not how humans work and by humans I also include women in that yeah we had a piece on the Atlantic that was actually about Pete Buttigieg whose name I can never pronounce you know first gay man to run for president and it was about the fact that lots of there's been lots of talk in the LGBT community about America in America about how he isn't gay enough right he's got two conventional life he's married you know he's Christian all of this kind of stuff you know that it's playing respectability politics and the point of this article was to say well look you're you know, even if you like the Dave Matthews band and you like shopping for homewares, you're still gay. It's still 
a big deal. Yeah. But it's uh, one of the other things that people don't like about him is that he shows how hard he's had to work to get there, which was something you definitely saw for Hillary Clinton, something I think you saw for Elizabeth Warren, something I always felt about Theresa May. They were, Nicola Sturgeon is another example, they had that kind of head girlishness, right? And I think as a woman, it, there is no template really for what it means to be to be powerful, ambitious and kind of wing it, Boris Johnson style. Mm. You have to be on it and everything has to be, you know, the hair has to be perfect, the pantsuit has to be perfect. And then people dislike you because it's all a bit controlling. And this kind of comes up in the Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix, in which she sort of talks about the fact that she's asked to be perfect and then people Mm. hate her for being the public image having been so controlled. When I was thinking about Boris Johnson, the announcement at the weekend that Carrie Simmons is expecting their first child together, of course not his first child, who knows how which no number one knows. Child no it one is knows. Boris's. But I was thinking about the fact that he has children by at least three different women. And I was thinking about when Kate Winslet do you remember when Kate mm. Winslet had her And Ulrika Johnson before her got called four by oh, four. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Donald Trump's in exactly the same position. He has children by three different women. And it's, it comes back to the kind of old Henry VIII thing where it's seen as their kind of mighty seed as, you know, so far and wide that they're this kind of mm. great virile man. And it doesn't get read like that for women no. still. But anyway, sorry, what I was going to say about Nancy Astor is that, you know, isn't everyone sort of problematic in the context of history? And shouldn't they be problematic? Because that's actually a sign of progress, isn't it? Isn't it a good thing if we're looking back at people in history and saying, well, I'm not sure about that? For me, I always found it most interesting in the book when I began to understand why things that I had been sort of that had been knee-jerkingly dismissed as problematic, that what what drove them? Because if you understand that, you can understand better how the change happened. Classic example of this is Mary Stokes I was in the just book, thinking, the birth yeah, control Mary pioneer. Stokes. And the fact is that eugenics was a really respectable intellectual tradition, particularly on the left, among the Fabians. And, and it was, came out this paternalistic belief that actually educated elites should tell people how to govern. And that idea has come back in different forms, right? There is a big gap in voting intentions, something like Brexit, about people who are educated, left school at 16, and people who are, uh, you know, went to university. And there was a lot of snobbishness around about the idea that, you know, well, how come these people haven't voted the right way? If only they understood things more. And I still think it's that kind of patrician tendency hasn't gone away, much as we would like to think, oh, how do these people in the 20s get to these ridiculous positions? It's something that will always keep cropping back up again. And the other thing that's a massive intellectual tradition that I, I hadn't thought about is natalism. So there's always a thing about, oh, the suffragettes were these posh white women and they only wanted women like them to get the vote. Not true in the sense that Annie Kenny, who's who I write about in the book was the highest ranking working class woman in the WSP, the Women's Social and Political Union. You know, they, they made an appeal specifically to what they would then call working women. But also, had women had universal suffrage after the First World War, so many men had died in that war that they would have instantly become a majority of the electorate. And already, you think, to ask to give women the vote is such a huge change, so disruptive, so disruptive. Then to say, oh, and we're going to be, we're gonna, there are going to be more of us than you, by the way. And I don't think people necessarily understand why that compromise was brokered. And both Emmeline Pankhurst and Millicent Fawcett, the you know, violent and non-violent sides that signed up to it, because they thought, we'll build from this. And guess what they did? Ten years later, they built from it to universal female suffrage. Ditto the campaigns for contraceptive access. Mary Stokes was always opposed to abortion access. She said, you know, my clients don't offer terminations. But once the principle had been established that women had the right to control their fertility, they built from that onto abortion access. I think you can say the same thing happened with the way that civil partnerships led to gay marriage. And things that look at the time like a kind of craven capitulation actually are often a pragmatic concession. If you look at sort of cancel culture, 
at the moment, which sort of ties in with all of this, I guess. Do you think that we too often make perfect the enemy of good? Absolutely, and I think women get held to a higher standard, which is something that just occurs to me, is that every feminist has got something you oh you shouldn't like her because of x you know there was a female writer i can't remember her name now who described it as the kool-aid point that particularly happens to women when they get famous and it's as if people really desperately want to debunk them like they reach they think everyone else has drunk the kool-aid she's not that brilliant she's not that brilliant and then you get people who become obsessed with sort of tearing her down and i think that definitely happens to feminists when they i mean definitely happened i write in the book a bit about what happened after catlin ran brought out her to be a woman but there was a certain sense of how she got all these opportunities you know what's what's so great about her um and and then an attempt to kind of bring her down for all, an arraignment of all kinds of crimes that she wasn't really guilty of and at that point you know people f- tell themselves they're offering honest good faith criticism sometimes they are but often it's motivated by resentment or jealousy or a feeling that why she you know why is she up doing that she's not that brilliant it could be you know someone like me or there's someone who's more worthy than her and also some legitimate stuff about the way that the easiest way to be a woman is to be in Britain, you know, white and middle class and straight and university educated. And those people do tend to get the most advantages out of feminism. You know, water flows downhill, so it hits the most privileged women first. And they do tend to... You know, I, I count myself very much in that, that bracket. So, you know, but... The, the way that it's kind of this vicious slashing righteousness I find very difficult to deal with. I mean, even looking at Caroline Flack, for example, is a pretty, you know, a recent and obviously pretty tragic and awful example. <coughs> but, you know, I think it happens to all women in the public eye. Build them up, build them up, they're great, they're great, they're great. And then the second there's an opportunity to rip them back down again. There's still that underlying idea, I think, even in 2020, and possibly, I think, resurging, of well, women know your place. Mm. You've done enough, but you can, you're allowed to go so far and so fast, and then we're going to have to put the brakes on that. And the easiest way to do it is to trash someone. I think Jennifer Aniston is, to me, the most obvious yes. Yes. example yeah. of that. You know, the idea. Poor, that I think you mean poor Jennifer. Poor Jennifer. Aniston. Poor childless Jennifer <laughs> Aniston, and you just think, well, actually, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, she looks cracking. She's, she yeah. looks. She looks pretty she's, good. Yeah. By all accounts, got really great friends. Like she's still friends with Courtney Cox. They still hang out together. You know, she's she's a brilliant comic actress. Oh, she's so, and she's got a banging sense of humour. Right. By all accounts, I just don't buy this sort of that she's sort of sitting at home clutching a picture of Brad Pitt and kind of crying into I think a. She's all right. Serial. <laughs> yeah, and all that like fuss. At, was it at the Oscars where they were like being quite playful with each yeah. other backstage? And it's like oh, like as if all this pining is going to finally pay off for her. And it's like well, I think she's actually more sensible. And to get back with the guy you left her for another woman. She seems then, like she's got her head screwed on okay. But then we all have an opinion about it. Do you know yeah, what I mean? It's I none an, of our business. Exactly. I have an opinion about it. But it's also a kind of frame with <laughs> existential, about, right? That, that, she, that she's in some kind of existential despair because she doesn't have kids. Yeah. Whereas you'll find lots of women who've got children, pretty small children, who are pretty unhappy on a day-to-day <laughs> basis, right? They're, they feel completely frazzled. They wonder if they made the right decision. They feel like they're missing out on opportunities that you know men at work are getting or that their friends who haven't had kids are getting. But that's not framed as like did you take the wrong course down through life in, in the same way, right? Whereas it is still a kind of know your placeism about women's role is to be mothers and if you don't do that you will all you'll definitely regret it you don't think you regret it now but you will regret it it's waiting for you I and who that, knows people are different some people will some people won't yeah i thought that was fascinating because i know a lot about the suffragists and suffragettes one because of what we do but also because it's a fascinating bit mm. of history and i'm a woman so it affected me and thank you very much to them but i thought the stuff about them 
going back to work and how they frame that with the, the whole like well men have already lost so much in the war and also like women sort of need to get back to their duties of just bring, having and bringing up children I've never really thought of that before why are we still thinking that way in 2020 though there's still that still underlies so much of why women are put back in their place I thought that period immediately after the first war was absolutely fascinating. Mm, I never yeah. really thought about it before. But 1.5 million women move into the workforce because they're needed for the war effort. You know, the, the government sets the price of munitions artificially low and sort of essentially forces the factories to work for them. The only people who can work at those wages are women because they pay them half as much. Well, of course, because they're women. And then you get this huge seething resentment that women are out earning their own money for the first time at the same time that the men are off risking their lives and get, you know, uh, invalided back. And, uh, and in this... Terrible kind of war machine. You know, the First World War was most incredibly wasteful. But instead of, you know, they're encouraged to resent women for this rather than the government that. What's that line from Black Addy? You know, one general wanted to move his ping pong table six inches closer to Paris. Um, You know, I think it's that time to me is really extraordinary. And you get the Restoration of Pre War Practices Act in 1919, which basically says give up your jobs, women. You know, you won't get any um, state assistance if you don't take a, you know, domestic service job, for example. And there's an attempt, really, to yeah, to put them back in the... You, you know, we, we needed you during the war, so that was great. Female emancipation was brilliant, but we don't anymore, so go back to it. And this, the same thing happens during the 70s. I write about this in the Time chapter. You know, these women who entered the workforce in the 70s, they, what they got was economic independence. You know, they... I, People kind of go, well, maybe things were happier then. Well, they, they weren't. For a start, you know, working-class women in particular have always had to work outside the home. The idea of having a family wage has never really applied there. And second of all, if you, own the, if you earn the money and control the money, you get to make the decisions, and that was what women experienced differently in the, in the 70s. I think what women now who have had a professional career and have go and have children and their salary really drops, that feeling of dependence can be really hard for people to deal with. Yeah. One of the things that you pick up on is how we're kind of like, amongst all the infighting, we're actually sort of missing opportunities. So one of the things you mentioned is the Me Too movement, and there's no substantial reform that's come out of that yet. And so I was wondering, with the sort of current conditions that we have in the world politically, you know, the powers at play, we've got this new intake of Tory MPs who've come in under this sort of banner of Brexit and whatnot. How worried do you think we should be about women's legal rights in this country at the moment? I kind of had this argument with Andrew Neil on the Politics Live last week because I said, you know, if we take ourselves out of all the European legislation, that at the moment provides a minimum floor on things like maternity pay and leave. Um, you know, Britain has always legislated it for itself on those those things, but it it means that there's no minimum, you know, the minimum is only the last bit of case law or act of parliament that we have in this country. So technically another, you know, government, one that has the kind of reforming zeal of getting rid of red tape, could come for those things again and he said oh you know I never hear about this government talking about cutting red tape they're not kind of Thatcherite which is fair enough as it goes that's not the noises that come out of number 10 but Pretty Patel and Dominic Raab um, come out of a tradition um, in the Tory party's Britannia Unchained tradition it's very much this kind of low tax low regulation much more kind of American model it's a very Tory ideology low regulation but a very particular type of Tory ideology and you know there was a big effort during the Brexit campaign and the women for Brexit thing to say actually Britain's 
Britain's always led the way on these employment rights. We don't need Europe to guarantee them. And that's, you know, I want to make sure that that stuff is all out there, front and centre, and there's no backsliding on that. Because actually there have been some times in the last couple of years where there have been big problems. Chris Grayling, who I uh, mentioned several times in the book, never, <laughs> never flatteringly. Oh, Chris Grayling. Um, you know, put these upfront fees on employment tribunals, £1,500 to get to an employment tribunal. Wow. So imagine being you know, a victim of pregnancy discrimination, sacked for being pregnant. You've already lost your income. You know, you think you've got a pretty up-and-down case. You've maybe managed to get a lawyer on no win, no fee, but you've got to find the money straight up ahead just to get through the door with no guarantee of success. And the Supreme Court ruled that they were unlawful and paid anyone back who had had one out, but it never accounted for all the people, all the women, who never got there in the first place, mm-hmm. who just had to take it and move on. You know, and I'm sure that applied to maternity discrimination and equal pay claims and, and lots of other stuff like that, sexual harassment at work. And that's why I say, you know, Chris Grayling is a, is a kind of villain of the Me Too movement. He might not have um, groped anyone or masturbated into a pot plant. That but you know of. That I know of. <laughs> I would just like to make clear for legal reasons. I, I claim no insight into <laughs> what his relationship is with pot plants. But, but, you know, but nonetheless, that was a very poor decision that affected marginalised women the most. Just touching on the Me Too movement a little bit more, I chatted with the awesome Sophie Walker the other day mm. for another one of these International Women's Day interviews. And we were talking about convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, no longer alleged. That was the title of the Atlantic's piece, Alleged No More. <laughs> yeah, we can say it now. Just the, the, the fury of, of all these women journalists having to keep writing the word alleged and just probably shaking their heads as they did it. But the fact that this has happened, I think is inc- it's incredibly positive and it could be a very, very positive tipping point. But one, we've got to remember that he was found not guilty on two counts, which is devastating for those women. And two, something has to happen. There's no legislation from Me Too. There's no mm. real change in policy. There's no real coherence in what people think we should be fighting for. And it just ends up, in a lot of ways, when people were fighting for women's rights, there's, there's disarray before there's a focus. Yeah. And that comes across really clearly in your book. So do you feel hopeful at the moment? I still do feel hopeful because there are some incredibly impressive women out there. I I interviewed Brenda Hale in the book, for example, Mm. the president of the Supreme Court, and we found out a couple of weeks ago that there was a kind of move against her the first time she ran president of the Supreme Court because they said, oh, Brenda's always got her her feminist agenda. You know, there was a sort of feeling that she was... But, you know, eventually she managed to overcome that kind of prejudice among her fellow lawyers and she held the government to account. She said that they were acting illegally and they had to, you know, they couldn't prorogue parliament in the way they wanted to. And that was a, you know, I I like to see an independent judiciary standing up to the executive because it proves we've got separation of powers. But, yeah, me too is is difficult. I'm very pleased that... um, Harvey Weinstein got convicted, not just because the use of the word alleged or he denies the accusations no longer have to appear, when there is such an overwhelming weight. But it really means something, right? And it means something that I think a lot of rape victims and sexual assault victims and even women who are victims of low-level prejudice feel, which is you want the world to acknowledge what happened to you that there is an extra injury from being disbelieved, right? That you're just told that what you know happened to you didn't happen. And I think sexism and racism and homophobia and things like that often function in that way of of not only does something happen to you, but you're not not allowed to complain about it or you're you're kind of gaslit. I think that is a useful phrase. And actually what happened is that a court, you know, instituted by society, civil society, a jury of your peers has ruled that you weren't lying, that you weren't making up, that you weren't a gold digger, that you weren't, you know, just doing it good for your career. And that validation is extremely important. And I think for all that I love the, 
you know, the ferocity of, of, of changing the culture and cult consciousness raising, having it acknowledged by your society in a formal way is just completely different. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely agree. Mm. Nothing to add apart from yes. No, but you know what I mean? I think I thought about it a lot when um, the Hillsborough inquest were going yeah. on about how much it meant to those families that they're not just the loss of their loved ones, but the fact that they were consistently told that they were drunk, liars, you know, they were... And, and, and this weight of institutional prejudice w w went against them for so many years. To get some kind of justice was really important. But, but I, yeah, but I am really hopeful. And as I say at the end of the book, you know, the first conviction for FGM is in the last couple of years since I started writing the book. You know, the equal pay audits that were started by Harriet Harman and the Equality Act in 2010 beginning to come through and people beginning to get their data. The Fawcett Society is now campaigning for this... Um, transparency stuff so you'll be able to get a male comparator salary so you can actually begin at last to see if you've got the basis for a claim you know the work by Stella Creasy and other backbenchers led to the fact that because they didn't restore Stormont the Northern Irish Assembly in time gay marriage and, and abortion became legal there and these incredible women that I met in Derry were just extraordinarily inspiring to me the fact they were willing to go to prison when they were all in their 60s and 70s you know they weren't ever going to need abortion pills but they would do that for other women just to make the point was incredibly inspiring Hey listeners, we very much like you listening, but we would bloody love you to become viewers. Our live gigs are things of joy, so you should totally come to one. Our next show is in Birmingham on Sunday the 29th of March at the very civilised time of 5pm. And Hannah and I will be chatting with the boss, Sarah Millican, the very talented actor and playwright Helen Monks, excellent comedian and actor Janice Connolly, aka Mrs Barbara Nice, and A.N. Other T.B.A. We're also in the process of finalising gig bookings in Brighton, Manchester, Milton Keynes, London and Edinburgh. So keep an eye on our website for details of those bad boys. That website? www.standardissuepodcast.com So I wanted to ask you, you talk about the pervasive feeling of wrongness. Mm. Of, uh, you know, we kind of sense it around us as women. So I wondered... What was your sort of feminist light bulb moment? One of them definitely, I can always remember. I read the work of Debbie Cameron, who's a linguistics professor at Oxford, when I was at Oxford, and she writes about the way that language in um, newspaper reports is often framed in this very sexist way. And one of the headlines she gives as an example is, man forced to watch wife's rape. And it's been, what now, like 18 years since I read that? And I just remember, actually, you know, when, when I was growing up, that is entirely the kind of thing I could imagine having mm. been... In, in a newspaper and thinking, God, poor guy, poor guy. Yeah, what a terrible thing yeah. to happen to him. And and you do now see every time there's a kind of such and such as wife does this or mum of three made director general or whatever it might be that people can just go, oh, actually, you know, how how is how are you framing just our experience of reality in these really deep ways? And because I work with language all the time, that's the stuff that I think most interested and appealed to me, just the way that you can write in a way that's so common that it becomes invisible, the fact that men and women are just different in fundamental really ways. I was just thinking it? that yeah. insidious, particularly on a slight tangent with the way the media reports domestic violence yeah. and murders. Yeah, it's Well, I talked horrific. about these brilliant guys in uh, Luke and Ryan Hart. Yeah, you know, we campaign on Luke for when we did the International Men's Day stuff. They're incredible, but they are, carry Yeah, on. and they are. They just, so, I think maybe also sort of feel all maternal. I'm sort of, such sweet boys. Oh, my God, um, like he's six foot... <laughs> yeah. 20 or something he's yeah. so tall but yeah just 
And they're so down to earth despite everything that's happened right. to them. They're just but like, their dad well, we've got was a, a job to do now. an abuser and coercively controlled the whole family. And then when their mum left, he killed her and their old and their younger sister. And they've turned that incredible tragedy into a way of, of talking about male violence. But what they said was incredible to them was not only getting to the police station and seeing posters about coercive control and for the first time realising what their childhood was, mm-hmm. like having words for it, which was one of the great feminist projects of the 20th century, even talking about the words domestic violence, right? Just giving people a way to understand what was happening to them and it wasn't right. But also then they said, you know, we were told not to look at the media reports, which was all like, he snapped, you know, he, he was a loving father. He was pushed and they were like, too far. Right, he wasn't this, that yeah. loving, was he, actually? No. And no. They, they won't talk about... Yeah, people refer to his suicide note, and they say we won't call it a suicide note, we call it a, a murder, a murder note. note. Because, you know, he wrote in a self-justifying screed about how he'd never been violent, and then he went out and with a shotgun and he killed two women. And, and the way that it was reported was what made them decide that they were going to go public about it. And I thought that was really important. Yeah. Yeah. And it still needs to change because really recently there was the guy uh, who um, set fire to his family in, in, the, yeah. in the car. Yeah. yeah. And it was like loving dad, what, like pushed too the far. Pictures. And it's yeah. And you think, it's well, like, my idea of a loving dad is one who doesn't set fire to his entire family. Actually, I think that's though. like a, a base minimum, yeah. <laughs> to be I honest. Do, I, I think it's extraordinary. I mean, I can see why in the terms of, in news reporting, you're always looking for the unusual, right? But the thing that I, you know, and as I understand it, Joan Smith has written more about this in her book, Homegrown, about kind of the links between domestic violence and terrorism, <laughs> that you do often find that terrorists, whether they be far-right or Islamic terrorists or um, spree killers, often have convictions for domestic violence. And what it is really is that, that people are grafting a grand ideological narrative onto their desire to be sadistic and unempathetic to people. They're finding whatever the cultural script is that's available to them to do what they want to do anyway. Yeah. And for some people that will be the far right, for some people that will be Islamism, for some people that will be hom- you know, homophobia. But it's just trying to find something to justify this unpleasant need that they have in them. And I think people find that really hard to accept that, you know, that they want to think that Islamist terrorists are some separate other category completely different to people like them. And you have to go... Yeah, it's not that the line is not that that simple. Mm. No, it's not even that blurry. It's just it's just they're all in the same bit of the Venn diagram. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that people get very defensive when you talk about male violence because obviously the vast majority of men aren't violent, and the vast majority of male violence is perpetrated against other men. Yeah, it's just that it is so unidirectional in the case of of women. You know that um, there are not women out there killing men in the same numbers as the other way around. And and at the moment the crime stats absolutely reflect that that women are not in prison. The the, the small percentage of women that are in prison are not in prison for violent crimes. Right. To the extent that actually there is provision, I think, for putting female offenders on the male estate if they're because you know if they're incredibly violent because the female estate isn't set up to deal exactly that um, with them, and I think that's that's that is really hard. But you know, I, I just think the the men I talked to for the book said you know people men you know men get quite defensive when we talk about this because they feel like we're not on their team somehow. And actually, we need to create the idea that there's a team of people who don't beat each other up, and that's the team to be on. You know? Yes, yes. Rather than you have to feel any kind of brotherhood with, with these killers and domestic abusers. I was reading Difficult Women, and I read a sentence that made me laugh out loud, 
Was and it Spherical Bastard? No, Not although I did bastard. bloody love Spherical like Bastard. Yeah. It was great. It made me laugh out loud because... And I will say, my poor fiancé, Gary, I think I've ruined his enjoyment of pretty much all TV and films because I'm like, well, did you see how that and the way that the woman was represented, blah, blah, blah. And the, the line is, being a feminist unavoidably involves being a killjoy because it involves puncturing the cosy bubble of consensus. That's difficult, and it can make you seem difficult for doing it. And I was like, yeah, that's me. That's why we can't watch films anymore. <laughs> that's why we can't watch TV anymore. But I felt seen, Helen, and I wanted Good. to say thank you. <laughs> I'm glad that you felt seen. I think that's from the section about Andy Murray, right, as well? Yes, yeah. I love that bit because there's now a series of clips of basically Andy Murray going, male. He's the best tennis player in the world. Male. The only, no tennis player has ever won two Wimbledon, whatever it is, two Olympic titles. Male. And it's him, it's him giving credence to the fact that Serena and Venus Williams are extraordinary athletes. Oh, my God, they're amazing. Athletes, yeah. And that he's not, in the way that some of the other top-flight male players have been slightly snooty about them because they're playing the little ladies game. He's like, no, they are at the absolute top of their craft and they deserve to be praised for it. And not in a you know patronising they're playing in a sort of you know separate competition they are just extraordinary athletes and i love that because it does sports journalism is still one of the most blokey bits of journalism and it must make anti pop really unpopular in that sort of sort of ha 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 chortly atmosphere to be like has anyone remembered the existence of half of humanity and i'm sure it you know they probably it's probably contributes to why people think that andy murray is a bit dour right and a bit not not fun because he's not in the chummy boys club cheer up andy it might never happen but that's what i mean i think we have andy murray is having the kind of quintessential female experience i'm like oh so humorless andy but i liked it and because you know i know lots of men like that actually and it's one of the things that i think is is really heartwarming and actually to me i always get asked a question at events about you know what can we do to get men more involved in feminism and i sort of think god do we have to organize men as well i mean come no. on but the nice thing is about moving to a, a model where you're you know it's about structures and laws and economic policy and, and goals a goals-based feminism is by saying this is what we want do you agree with us can we build the coalition around this and actually you know there were they didn't allow men in the Women's Social and Political Union, but Fred Pethick Lawrence was a phenomenal suffragette until obviously Emmeline Pankhurst um, kicked him out because, well, they fell out over, the, over militancy. But he was an extraordinary supporter of the suffragettes, was force-fed for the cause, but didn't, crucially, want to be in charge of the suffragettes. And I think that was the, the lesson that I really took away from Fred Pethick Lawrence, is that actually, it's, and Grayson Perry writes about this a lot, about men sit down for your rights, you know, you can kind of muck in, you don't have to be in the onion headline man put in charge of struggling feminist movement yes and actually there's something quite relaxing about that if you're a man don't feel you have to come in and dominate it all just just muck in just chip in a bit i remember having a conversation with a guy who was like i really want to be a better feminist and personally i i don't i think men can be feminist allies but not feminists and i know that's like it's contentious people have different i actually decided on that whole question i just don't care (laughs) i think that's also a very fair response (laughs) yeah you know what I mean? It's one of those real angels dancing on a pin thing where I think I could spend time arguing about this or I could say, here's what I want. Do you agree? Are you, like, will you turn yeah. up to the demo? Will you do this? Will yeah. you sign a petition? Will you whatever it might be? Yeah, And I'd... then yeah, what you call yourself is sort of secondary at that point. But So I was almost like that attitude to him and I was like, okay. And he's like, so what can I do? And I started and I was like, well... And as I paused, he went, because what I think is... And I was like, yeah, not that. That is not the way to, like, listen. Listening is the first thing that anyone can do to help other movements, is to hear what they want, why they want it, 
and then maybe think about how you can help. It's true. I do still see an annoying thing sometimes when you get a man allying themselves with a feminist cause and then suddenly they'll get a huge amounts of women sort of fawning over them like they're kind mm. of you know like oh finally we've been validated by the, one of the proper people coming along and saying this and I think god we really have to check that tendency in ourselves to be like oh now a man said it so it must be objectively true I guess we've been told that though it's, it's social conditioning yeah. writ yeah. large in all of us yeah, yeah. But, you know, if it's socially conditioned, it can be socially unconditioned. And I think that's another thing that I, I, I think very strongly, I feel like, I, is a point that I want to make at this moment in time, is there's a resurgence both of scientific racism and actually scientific sexism about the, the idea that certain things are just hardwired and, and women are like this and men are like this. Mm-hmm. And you go, I think it's really hard to make those claims when we know for a start that things have changed so much. You know, I write in the book about how women weren't allowed into, in, into universities until 1870s and it was, you know, the thing is their brains. Their brains are so small, how can they do the learning? And then now they're the majority of undergraduates and we actually have to talk about the fact that boys are having problems in school and in education. And so everything that was said to be natural about women's lack of capacity to learn just turned out to be absolute bollocks. Yeah. And, I, you know, who is the perfect genderless subject raised by, you know, in a family on a planet with no gender and no expectations placed upon them? who we can use to say as our control group about separating out biology and culture, that these people don't exist. So I'd be really, really sceptical about making those hard claims about what men are like and what women are like. Uh, I and totally agree. People do it all the time. You know what I mean? And there's a kind of like, the thing is, feminists just don't want to face up to facts. And you're like, well, contesting your facts is not the same as not accepting <laughs> the premise of science, sir. <laughs> Subtweet Ben Shapiro there. <laughs> Sorry. Who's your favourite difficult woman? It's so hard to pick a favourite. It's really hard to pick a favourite. Oh, don't make me pick a favourite. Could you pick three? I was no, gonna James, say, if I'm difficult. <laughs> if I'm going to be able to pick three, I have to say, I, I loved Kitty and Colette and Diana, the three women I met in Derry, because you know what? They weren't asking for fame or recognition. They risked a lot. They risked going to prison. You know, it's an assault conviction if you um, get an, uh, one against the Offence Against the Person Act, which is the legislation that used to cover abortion. And they just did it because they thought it was right. And I think that's just incredible. They took such a big risk, you know, and they weren't making a career out of being feminists. They weren't, you know, they were just normal women who saw something that they thought was an incredible injustice. It didn't, at this point in their lives, even affect them. So they did it for other women out of a sense of solidarity with a younger generation. And that I find incredible. I love them. And they took me to some incredible metal pub in Derry, which was not a concert I was familiar with. Um, some guy with this huge, easy top beard um, served us tea and biscuits, and they told, they told me all about their their fight. But I think it, it's very hard to read that. Cha- I reread that chapter, and I just it makes me slightly emotional every time. Are you doing a franchise? Because clearly there's room for difficult women too. <laughs> the difficultening. Yeah. Yeah, there are, and there are subjects that, as you see, that I haven't... I mean, I haven't got into really sexual harassment at work. I haven't really got into... I mean, I've glancingly mentioned porn, but it's, I think, a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I'm not that my mother will thank me for... <laughs> She hasn't. She's got a copy, and I'm. I, she said, um, "Should I read all of it?" And I said, "Could you maybe skip chapter three? <laughs> but the funny thing is, when I do events, people keep asking me about Mary Stopes, but and I think you've read the sex chapter first, haven't you? <laughs> Come on, admit it. 
Um, but that's, you know, as long as you buy the book, you can read whatever chapters you want. <laughs> it's a good chapter. It's a good chapter. They're all good chapters. It's, 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 <laughs> They're all good chapters, Brent. It's an excellent book. I really, really enjoyed it. I um, think reading the sex chapter first is actually quite a good idea, because it's the one that just people just seem to keep reading the same facts and then immediately forgetting them. <laughs> and correct, the, myth, the, the vaginal orgasm myth. Just Why is this still going? Years of, of people just going, still doesn't, ex- still doesn't exist, guys. And then, yeah, and then it never seems to stick. And then you find this research from... Kinsey in the 50s being like the thing is that for a while. women don't very... masturbate by putting things in their vaginas so actually maybe they don't really like penetration that much and then you go oh right well it's probably let's just ne- never mention that again at the it risk of TMI like several men in the not too distant past for me have been like, oh, can you not? Oh, like, I've met a couple of other women like you. It's, it's the majority, mate. Yeah. The others were lying yeah. to you. <laughs> I love that story of Princess Mary Bonaparte and having her clitoris moved. But yeah. it's, it's funny. Well, it's sad, though. But it's so sad. It's so sad because, I mean, admittedly, yes, her husband was gay, so there were <laughs> going to be problems from the start with that sexual relationship. But she had unnecessary surgery on her body to correct a problem that essentially didn't exist. And you know that's happening now with people having cosmetic labiaplasty yeah. because they've seen vulvas in porn that look doll-like, and they think, "Why haven't I got one of those?" And there's nothing wrong. It's not causing. There's not any problems with sensation or anything like that. They just it, just, it just doesn't look aesthetically the way they feel it ought to look. And also because we're not taught at school in sex ed one very much or anything about female pleasure, and also that the labia has so many nerve endings. Yeah. So can you imagine? We're taught what a vulva is, are we? Exactly. So can you imagine if a bloke was like just to be aesthetically pleased, like more pleasing? They just like cut a load of nerve endings off their knob. That's never going to happen. It's one of those things, isn't it? Where you think, you know, and you read about things like foot binding. You think, how did we never get it going that like actually having one testicle was the kind of (laughs) aesthetics improvement? Actually, everybody's got to got to like twist off one the other one, and then that's how they'll look really attractive to us. Do you know what, Helen? I've been waiting for a campaign I can really get behind. (laughs) (laughs) to convince all men that they're repellent two testicles are repellent two, there's far too many testicles who wants that many it's, oh I can't better look at you greedy yeah. I think on that on that, <laughs> yeah, on bomb that bombshell on that bombshell Kevin Difficult Women is out now published by Jonathan Cape it's fantastic and everyone it should go and read it yeah. what are you up to next I endorse this message I am writing about the Labour leadership election. I'm writing about. I'm writing a series on institutions for the Atlantic. I'm, I'm really interested. It's some of the stuff we talk about in the book, actually. You know, that when you think about this era of backlash, actually having really stuff embedded in laws and policies, and you know, having things like the Equalities Office become even more important. And so that's the kind of stuff I want to write about. Stuff that's really boring and find a way to make it really interesting. Who knows whether or not join me as I try and as I work out whether I can succeed. We can make it part can. of the one ball campaign. But you know what I mean? One ball for all? One ball for all. But like convincing okay. men that it's unhygienic. It's, no one will marry you with one ball. <laughs> no, with two balls. No one will marry you with two balls. No. Uh, absolutely. Let's give it a try. And if we want to find you on Twitter so that we can hashtag me on oh, right. the oh, one yeah. ball campaign. <laughs> my greatest feminist legacy finally I've got, you know I'm friends with Caroline Crowder Paris who's got this enormous like CV of incredible campaigns to her name and this this is it this is my the, when we had that statue in Parliament Square of a single testicle yeah I'll this know is, this is like in equivalent to Caroline this is your toilet <laughs> this is it that's what they'll call me so where can we find One Ball Lewis on Twitter uh, I'm at Helen Lewis on Twitter Helen thank you very much Hello, Hannah here. 
Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Standard Issue for All Women.